This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing, uh, whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky, who's down in Texas still. Still in Texas, but I'm getting close to the finish line, and I'll be home for the summer, so... Yay! Yay. Oh, I'm so excited! Uh, me too. <laughs> Me too. I'm so excited to get out of the Texas humidity and heat. Yeah, and take some time off from school. Like, yes. Have a yeah. little break. Yeah. Oh, so excited. It's going to be oh. a great summer, and it will be the greatest summer ever if things actually open up again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I really hope so. Oh, my <sighs> gosh. Too. I think by the time you get back to Boise, we'll be probably in phase two of Governor Little's four-phase reopening, yeah, the rebound. Well, listen, I do want to say that I am so impressed with Idahoans because I, having, being in Texas, I sort of was watching from afar sort of as everything unfolded, especially back home, and I was so impressed that I, in my cohort, we kind of had this funny game where we sort of waited to see, like, whose home state got a confirmed case and Idaho just uh-huh. really hung in there and I kind of made the joke that like well it's really just that we're not testing and because sure enough once we got one case we had within two weeks we're almost near a thousand and I was just like oh this is not right. good and then the governor put the the shelter in place order down and we have dropped to like almost level numbers which has been so impressive to watch because texas is not doing that we have more cases in the county that i'm living in than the entire state of idaho does so i really am impressed that everyone not only like obeyed the rules but like obeyed them so well that our Mm -hmm. cases have just dropped significantly so i'm so impressed i'm so proud of my home state and I'm so excited to come back because I will have way less of a chance of contracting the virus than I will yeah. where I currently am. I have not left my apartment for anything in uh, about mm, almost a, two weeks. So I'm ready. <laughs> oh, be safe. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you haven't been affected by it. And has anyone in your building, your apartment building, been affected? Do you know? Yeah, we got, uh, I think like three weeks ago, we got a an email that someone in the complex had tested positive. And up before that, they had like the tennis courts open so we could all go, you know, do something outside of our apartments. But once that happened, they closed down the tennis courts oh. and the barbecue pits and any public area got shut down and has been shut down. So... Yeah, we're going on nearing two months, I think, of our shelter-in-place order here in Texas, so I'm ready. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so tired yeah, of being in my apartment. <laughs> yeah, I think everyone's feeling this stir-crazy. Yeah. I'm ready to get out there. Oh, man. Do, yeah, do what you have to do to stay safe because, mm-hmm. you know, the last thing that we want is everyone to rush out just because we're ready to be out of our apartments and to cause a whole <laughs> new wave because then we're going to be stuck in our apartments even longer. So yeah. do, do Let's what's not smart. Let's do this again. Yeah. Be safe. Be smart. It will eventually end at some point. Like, that's, that is yeah. my only consolation is, like, probably in 1918 when the, the Spanish flu was going around, everyone thought the same thing that we did, and it eventually ended, and it'll get back to normal. Mm-hmm. As I mean, as normal as it will be after something like this. Yeah. Well... Oh. Oof. All right. Now that I'm done on my soapbox, let's uh, let's get started on some stories. I believe that you are starting today. Yes, and I have a 
a very Ohio-centric story. Uh, you'll, you'll see why as we go through this episode here. Anthony, did you know that this is an Idaho history podcast, though? Not an Ohio history podcast. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's also a prison and true crime, like, educational podcast podcast. So I decided to do kind of a compare contrast, a look at the Ohio State Penitentiary and who better to do it than through the story of Reuben Gardner, number 1158. And my sources today, I used, of course, his Idaho inmate file, the Library of Congress Chronicling America, which was essential to dig up stories from Ohio, Ancestry.com, the Ohio History Central Dot org, uh, this article about the Ohio Penitentiary. In 1891, Sandborn map of Columbus, which showed the Ohio Penitentiary. And I referenced a June 1903 Sandborn map of Boise, the Idaho Statesman, of course. The 1899 edition of Historical Lights and Shadows of the Ohio Penitentiary. And a Wikipedia article on William Sidney Porter, better known as O. Henry. So, Reuben Gardner, number one one five eight. He was born April first, eighteen fifty nine, in Sandusky, Ohio, which is right off of Lake Erie between Cleveland and Toledo. And despite being born there, it appears that he and his family actually lived in western Ohio in the small farming community called Scott. And his father, six year old Horace Gardner, married twenty seven year old Elizabeth Betsy Marnia in eighteen fifty seven four months after his first wife, Ora, passed away in September of 1856. Reuben had four half-siblings named Martha, Marianne, Henry, and John from Horace's first wife, and seven full siblings named Solomon, Joseph, Rosetta, Horace Jr., Emma, Flora, and Lily. Big family. Yeah. And they, they owned a big farm. And I found in Ohio newspaper called the Fremont Weekly Journal that Horace sold 80 acres to a man in Scott, Ohio in 1873 for $3,570. Uh, four years after this, his younger wife dies at the age of 44 in September of 1877. And this actually happens to be the same year that Reuben Gardner marries his wife, Christina, in Wood County, Ohio. And she would remain by his side for so many of his trials and tribulations. I think that they actually grew up together because they were only five months apart in Mm -hmm. age. But a year after their marriage, Horace Sr. passes away in 1878, leaving 19-year-old Ruben and his family on their own. And around this time, they had their first son, Christina, and Ruben named him Charles. In 1880, Reuben and Christina were living in a small village south of Toledo called West Millgrove, where he lists his occupation as laborer. I don't know what he was up to for most of 1880, but his first serious infraction came about on November 23, 1889. Reuben was drinking and playing cards with a man named Lafayette France in West Millgrove, and they started to fight over the game. And Reuben dared Lafayette to leave the table, to leave the game, and step out the door. When Lafayette actually stood to leave, Reuben snapped. He pulled out a knife and plunged it into Lafayette's side. Whoa. Lafayette fell to the floor and died, like, almost immediately after. Oh. Police arrived. They took Reuben away quickly, which probably saved his life, as newspapers reported that his speedy removal to the county jail at Bowling Green stopped all talking of lynching, which is a common practice in the area. Huh. So, yeah. Vigilante justice, baby. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, he, he kills a guy over yeah. gambling. And yeah. I don't know if maybe if he was losing or if Lafayette was losing, what spurred it on. But uh, not worth it. I, oh, man. No, no. So, please, please yeah. do not stab anyone over a game of don't. cards. Don't do it. It's Never. not, it's not necessary. Just don't stab anybody in general, yeah. yeah. But, yes, but especially not over a game of cards. Yeah. So, Reuben, he sat in the county jail until June 1890, and he's finally tried, and the trial was super short. There were only a few witnesses that were called, and he actually had some witnesses on his side who took the stand to prove that he was not a vicious man. The newspaper reported, What promised an interesting trial has turned out to be a very tame affair. And after a short time with the jury, the verdict of manslaughter was imposed on Reuben, and he was sentenced to the Ohio State Penitentiary for 10 years. So, 
The Ohio State Penitentiary was located in Columbus, and it opened in 1834 and housed prisoners until 1979 before it was demolished and replaced by businesses and buildings. The conditions of the prison were very bare, emphasizing the belief that prison was about punishment and not rehabilitation. It was pretty sizable. Uh, the compound it was surrounded by a wall with the main dorm area shaping into a backwards L. And like Idaho's prisoners, Ohio's prison population was put to work in prison industries, doing leather work, barrel and broom making, and all kinds of other little jobs. And so, of course, I had to pull up a Sanborn map from 1891 to check out the grounds when Reuben arrived. And I went down so many rabbit holes. The prison had a cigar shop. Inmates were wrapping cigars, which were sold on the outside. And there was... One point that I found where a bunch of cigars were actually stolen and found in this hollowware shop at the prison where they were making teapots and other tabletop containers, a perfect place to hide a bunch of cigars. They had a couple blacksmith shops, uh, the Columbus Chair Company caning shop where they wove the caning inside the chairs, a foundry, two bolt shops, a buckle shop, a machine shop, and a couple of Japanning ovens where they could bake on these ornate designs onto items with lacquer. There was a women's prison constructed in 1837, three years after the completion of the men's prison, and it was partitioned off in front of the East Hall of Cells in a confined area that looks to be roughly the size of the old Penn's women's ward. The women had a laundry house in their section to provide them some place to work. Unlike Idaho's female prisoners, there were three women in Ohio who were put to death in the electric chair. Uh, Idaho has never had a woman put to death, so I didn't look into other women. The electric chair was, was installed in the 1890s at the Ohio Penitentiary, which is kind of when I was focusing the history here. But previously, I believe that, yeah, I think that there had actually been women who were hanged at the hmm. site as well. Huh, fascinating. And then the women were actually transferred to a new prison site in 1913, so just around the time Idaho's establishing their tiny little women's ward. Uh, so the prison held some pretty notable inmates, including the short story writer William Snyder Porter, who came up with his name O. Henry while incarcerated at the same time as Reuben in the 1890s, and he was in there for embezzling over $800. And he wrote and published 14 stories while incarcerated at the Ohio State Penitentiary. There seemed to be a lot of publications coming out of the Ohio State Pen in the 1890s, and... Uh, I found this other fascinating book called Historical Lights and Shadows of the Ohio Penitentiary and the Horrors of the Death Trap, written by Dan J. Morgan, the superintendent of the Ohio Penitentiary Schools. And it is described as word sketches from life of the greatest prison in the world and includes some of the best passages of prison slang and prison lore I've come across from the turn of the century. And it starts with this tour of the prison. A queer, unnatural feeling takes possession of everyone on first hearing the dismal click of the latch fastening the heavy doors after passing through them. When you realize for the first time that you are indeed surrounded by the cold walls of the Ohio Penitentiary, a damp, chilly atmosphere and a prison odor are the prevailing noticeable features to attract the first attention of the visitor. So this is kind of similar you know, experience that visitors of the old pen get when they first enter the prison and the gate swings behind them, you know, and, and that big blue gate slides shut. You know, that, that sound. Ugh. The uh, warden then explains the rest of the prison's layout, the system of grading, which was similar to what Idaho's prison was doing at the time, putting prisoners in levels 1, 2, and 3, depending on their conduct and how close to release they were. And there's this great passage about the first night experience of prisoners that reflects on kind of what Patrick Murphy wrote in the book Behind Gray Walls and, you know, what most first-timers who arrive at prison experience. And it says, uh, the first night in the cell is what tries the very souls of most of the new prisoners. When locked up in their dismal, lonely cells for the first time, a realization of their condition is forced upon them and in many instances they sit down and weep as if their hearts would break. The thoughts of loved ones at home crowd thick and fast upon their memories, and if they sleep at all, it is to dream of happy associations at the old homestead with father, mother, brothers, sisters, wives, and children, only to awaken to find themselves utterly miserable convicts, 
outcasts of society, with no one to confer a single kind favor upon them. It's 156 pages of prison stories and highlights murderers, forgers, counterfeiters, bank robbers, and the lives and jobs of prison staff and a detailed look at the prison's history with tons of photos and drawings. And it's online for free at archives.org. So I highly recommend if you're just into like reading this sort of stuff, go check it out. It's really fascinating. It has a whole section where it highlights the women prisoners in the 1890s with these horrible drawings of them. But their stories are fascinating, including this woman who was in for the arson murder of her two daughters. And while awaiting her sentence at the penitentiary, she had a baby in the county jail. And the baby was named by the warden, Warden. So she had a baby named Warden Garrett that was born in prison. Super wild. Uh, That's very weird. Poor baby. Yeah. I'd be like, I'm sorry, my name is what? I'm not. (laughs) Why? No, call me. Just give me a nickname. I don't care. Just don't. That's a terrible name. Uh, They had their own detention cells that they called the bug house, which is just like what we had here at the old pen around this time. Uh, Margaret Hardy, of course, is one of our most famous inmates that we heard about last season who spent some time in the bug house. And then I found a note that they called the new inmates fresh fish while more established inmates were called codfish, which I thought was kind of interesting. We uh, definitely had that nickname of fish for the new inmates at the old Idaho Penitentiary, but codfish was kind of an interesting thing. (laughs) Uh, There's a huge section that highlights all the men and women that were executed at the prison, including their crimes, their last words, and all these gruesome details, including some info about botched executions, which... I don't know. If our listeners want to hear about it, let me know. Maybe I can include that in future episodes. But uh, I went through the whole entire book to find a mention of an event that Reuben was a part of a day after Christmas in 1894. So he worked at the foundry with 51 other men casting metal pieces, most likely for the brooms and buckles and the other prison industry offices. And there seemed to be a lack of discipline in the foundry, mostly due to the fact that rookie guards were generally sent there for guard duty. Uh, The newspaper noted that convicts have been in the habit of taking undue liberties in the foundry. So the administrators decided to instill some discipline to put in this strict guard named Sheridan Temple on duty there in the foundry to reestablish a sense of discipline in the shop, which caused some issues and the prisoners were not a fan of temple and they began making threats towards him telling him they were going to get him and a a prisoner named joseph o'day serving two years for forgery and two other prisoners were written up for making these threats now losing some of their good time they decided to retaliate against temple and on the morning of december 26th 1894 when all the prisoners began showing up at their shops for work joseph o'day and his partners waited to ambush guard Temple. When he entered, one of the prisoners grabbed Temple around the neck while O'Day struck him over the head with an iron bar. Two guards heard the commotion and rushed in along with the other prisoners working in the foundry, including Reuben Gardner. And Temple, who was dazed but still, you know, had enough wits about him, attempted to pull out his revolver, but the prisoners holding him grabbed his arms. O'Day shouted to Reuben, Bring me a knife and I'll cut his hands off or cut his throat and Reuben started towards the knife when Temple fired his revolver through his pocket, stopping Reuben Gardner with a bullet in his right thigh. O'Day turned to hit Temple again, and Temple fired three more times. The bullet tore through O'Day's chest and pierced his right lung. A fatal shot. The other prisoners led up and were shackled and taken to solitary confinement while Joseph O'Day died on the ground in the foundry. Reuben was taken to the prison infirmary to treat his wound. On January 4th, 1895, guard Sheridan Temple was exonerated for the killing as justifiable homicide. Mm-hmm. Reuben Gardner would have a scar in his right thigh for the rest of his life. And despite his involvement in the killing, Reuben was released before his 10-year minimum sentence came up. So, unfortunately, I didn't have access to his prison file, so I couldn't find any other information but it sounds like he was paroled about you know 1895 1896 is my Mm. guess 
So upon his release in Ohio, Reuben and Christina moved to Boise, Idaho, and they lived right next to the railroad tracks, which ran between Myrtle and Front Street in downtown Boise. It was a rough part of town, and it seems that everyone that I found Reuben came across had a prison record. Uh, Their son, Charles, he was not listening to the census with them in 1900. He would have been in his early 20s and Mm. and probably left left the family to start his own life. The Gardners did have a new child, a, a daughter named Roselle, who was born around 1899. And Reuben seemed to find trouble soon after arriving in Boise. In October 1899, he was arrested and questioned for the theft of a set of harnesses from a Boise hack driver named Frank Johnson. Authorities had to release Reuben due to a lack of evidence, and I looked up Frank Johnson and found that he was no angel himself. In January of 1900, he was arrested after assaulting his wife and knocking her down. And the next month, a friend of his ran to the police station to get help as he feared Frank had committed suicide with a poison called laudanum, which was a tincture that contained powdered opium. And when the officer arrived, Frank was dead, asleep. Uh, He had added 10 drops of the opiate to his whiskey so he could sleep, he said. And so they took his unconscious body to the police station to keep him under observation and released him the next day. Anyways, so... A lot of rabbit holes. Reuben seemed to have a target on his chest, and if they didn't know it already, the authorities certainly would have learned about his manslaughter conviction and time at the Ohio State Penitentiary after the harness theft arrest. He's arrested again on August 4th, 1901, for stealing vegetables from a Chinese gardener living near the Boise River, and his name was Mon Yuen. Reuben was sentenced to 30 days in the 80-county jail because he couldn't pay the $100 bail. An article in the Idaho Statesman discussed his release in August after his 30 days. And he said he was so anxious to forego the pleasures of the sheriff's hospitality that he left at four o'clock without his breakfast, (laughs) which I thought was just kind of fun. Trouble didn't stop there. And this might be the point where he becomes the ultimate villain to many of our listeners. December of 1901, Reuben is arrested again, this time for poisoning a dog belonging to his neighbor Thomas Whitaker, who had previously served time in the old pen for grand larceny. But Thomas Whitaker's dog was described as valuable, and for some reason Reuben just hated this dog. The newspaper stated, He was known to have made threats to kill it, and Friday, when the dog was found dead with bologna sausage loaded with strychnine in the yard, suspicion pointed at once to him as the author of this crime. The offense is a misdemeanor, and should Gardner be convicted of the charge against him, he will be subject to a heavy fine and term in the county jail. The charges were dismissed, though. And, of course, this made me go down one of the saddest rabbit holes I've gone down in a while. Anthony, you need to Uh, stop doing that. Uh, I I know. (laughs) Uh, But it's so fascinating. I wanted to, like, you know, dog poisoning. What? Unfortunately... Around the mid-1890s through the early 1900s, there were hundreds of dogs that were poisoned in Boise. And uh, I found an article from February of the previous year saying that some miscreant has been leaving bits of meat and bologna saturated with poison lying around the streets of Boise. And as a result, over 25 dogs have died of poisoning during the past week, a number of the dogs thus killed being considered valuable. And before that, there was an article in March of 1899, the Idaho Statesman, comparing the dog poisonings to Jack the River, calling the mysterious man Jack the Dog Poisoner. They wrote, This poisoning business is the meanest, most cowardly, and detestable way of taking life. To give it to a dog or horse is the very next thing to administering it to man. And it seems that this period saw hundreds of poisonings, and they could not figure out who it was. Some Hmm. monster was walking through neighborhoods, tossing pieces of poisoned meat and bologna and liver and other little scraps into people's yards so the dogs would find it. That person really did not like dogs. They were not a dog person. Exactly. And guess what? Reuben gets arrested a second time for injuring another neighbor's dog. In December of 1904, he was out front. He was chopping wood in his yard when his neighbor Frank Gillespie's dog strayed into his yard. And Reuben saw the dog and threw the axe at it. Yeah, the axe struck the dog in the leg and cut him severely and knocked him unconscious. What the heck? 
I know. And I couldn't, I don't know if the dog died or if he survived. There was no follow-up, which, you know, ugh. Ugh. Ruben was arrested, and he was put under a $25 bond, and the case was actually dismissed a couple days later by the neighbor, Frank Gillespie, who also had served time at the old pen for grand larceny just a couple years prior. I don't know if Ruben made a threat against Frank or if Frank just didn't want to get the law involved because of his previous incarcerations and everything, but uh, he wasn't charged for it. But Ruben's luck would run out. On October 6th, 1905, the Idaho statesman had a story titled Robbed Old Man of All He Had, following with a story about an old man named E.C. Buell who lived in a tent in Shacktown on 8th and 4th Street, whose property in its entirety was stolen. And the statesman described this crime as a heartless robbery of an old man. Buell had packed up all of his belongings into this large chest and a small box, and they were all ready to pick up and move on when Reuben Gardner, an old acquaintance of his, invited him to downtown Boise to drink. But it was Sunday, so the bars were closed. Reuben had another idea, and they actually got a bottle of whiskey from the pharmacy. And after drinking and wandering through town, Reuben and Buell parted ways. And when Buell returned to his little campsite, his two boxes containing all of his belongings were gone. And he immediately alerted the police, who suspected Reuben of the crime. And after 10 days of investigation, the police finally secured a warrant to search the home of Reuben's friends, Arthur and Mary Allen, near Nampa. And when they arrived at the Allen home, they found Mary and Reuben, along with Buell's belongings. The two were arrested, and soon after, Christina Gardner was also arrested. Arthur Allen was nowhere to be found, until Mary told the sheriff that he had fled towards Minidoka. The sheriff went to Minidoka, where he found Arthur, who had the rest of Buell's belongings in his possession. So he was arrested and brought back to Boise. While being questioned, Reuben and Christina Gardner said that they had no idea what was going on. Mary also said she didn't know anything about these stolen items. There was one weak link in this little crime, though. Arthur. He confessed and he admitted that a plan was hatched to rob the old man, but he wouldn't say who came up with the plan. The plan and execution was as follows. Simple. Reuben Gardner would buy whiskey for the old man in town. Meanwhile, his wife, Christina, and Mr. and Mrs. Allen would go into the tent and steal everything. So when the police searched at the Allen's property, they actually discovered the charred remains of the chest in the yard. And Buell identified the remains of the chest and the old-fashioned square nails that were used in it. And this condemned the two couples. None of the other three defendants ever admitted to anything, and the attorney asked for Mrs. Allen to be discharged because she was connected to the crime only through her husband's testimony. Regardless, Mary, along with the other three defendants, were held on a fixed bail of $1,000 each, and Miss Gardner, Christina, was actually had her bail reduced to $100 so that she could go home and take care of her child and stock, and she had no issue paying that in cash and we'll get to that next week in our couples episode when we discuss arthur and mary allen but on october 10th 1905 four days after the original story was produced reuben gardner pled guilty to the charge of burglarizing buell's tent and he was sentenced to three years in the penitentiary miss gardner she was dismissed on a written motion of the county attorney for a lack of evidence against her and the fact that in view of the sentence of the husband to a long term in prison, Miss Gardner's liberation was imperative to the end that the children of the couple might be taken care of. And definitely tune in next week to hear what happens to Arthur and Mary Allen in the season's couples episode that we will tell. Ruben's intake, he's number 1158. He's received October 11th, 1905. His crime is burglary, sentenced three years, age when received, 47 years old. Born in Ohio, occupation laborer, height 5 feet 7 inches, complexion medium, weight 185 pounds, color of hair brown, color of eyes blue, cataracts in each. Married with two children, father died when he was 19, mother when he was 17. He left home at the age of 20. He had some religious instruction in Sunday school in the evangelical church. He was illiterate and had never attended any school. He was a moderate drinker. 
He had former imprisonment in Ohio, 10-year term for homicide, claims did not serve full term, but was paroled, released from there 10 or 12 years ago. So that must have been 1895 sometime, if, if that's correct. Closest relative, Miss Carolyn Gardner, his wife, and I found it strange that he used her middle name, which was Carolyn, instead of her first name, Christina. Peculiarity in build, heavy set, has bullet scar in right thigh. Condition of teeth, poor, his cataracts in both eyes, brown mustache worn, eight and a half size boot and six and seven eighths size hat, and he had no property on him when he arrived. And his file is pretty sparse. He didn't have any infractions while he was incarcerated. And he actually just spent under three years at the penitentiary and was released on April 11th, 1908. When he arrived, the wall around the women's ward was being constructed and, and probably being finalized about that time. There weren't a lot of write-ups in his file. It was pretty sparse, as I said, and he spent just under three years in the penitentiary and was released on April 11th, 1908. And after Rubin's release, the gardeners moved to South Boise, which was just being established just south of the Boise River. And they purchased two houses on 2nd and Colorado Street. And they lived in one and rented the other one. Hmm. Unfortunately, in June 1913, the houses both caught fire and burned down when a gasoline stove exploded. Ah. Yeah, yeah. And this was actually the first call the fire department had received from South Boise. So it was the very first house in South Boise to, to burn down. And both of them owned by Reuben and Christina Gardner. But the heartbreak didn't end there for Reuben. In 1915... Christina filed for divorce against him on the grounds of cruelty and alleging that he had tried to force her to aid in his nefarious enterprises. The judge granted Christina the divorce and gave her the custody of Roselle and the community personal property as her own. And the next thing I could find on Reuben is that he bought half of a lot in South Boise during the spring of 1919. In the 1930 census, he's listed as divorced and living by himself in South Boise. And the sad ending, he was actually found dead in his home. On his death certificate, they had to estimate that he probably died September 11, 1934, of natural causes. There was no indication of foul play, and that is basically the end of his life. It seems that he didn't get into any trouble or he never got caught after his run-in with the Allens, but he had a pretty sad end of days here. Yeah, so how many days between when he they think he died and when he was found? It didn't list. It, oh. Yeah, I couldn't find anything in the newspaper of, of his body being found other than that they were trying to estimate how much his property was worth. Mm. Yeah, it, it could have been a number of days. And well. That's, I mean, that's the scary thing about living alone. Like, unfortunately, like, throughout this, like, COVID situation, you know, you hear of people who, they go to the doctor, and the doctor says, like, yeah, you have COVID, go stay home, and don't, you know, don't see anyone, and they end up dying, and no one knows, because no one lives with you. It's very, I mean, it's it's a reality, and it's very scary for me. I mean, people who don't live alone may not be as scared, but I live alone. It's kind of (laughs) scary. For sure, it's a reality of, of what we're going through right now. We're all yeah. kind of in that, yeah. I, oh. over earlier this semester, actually, I had what ended up being a pretty mild case of meningitis, but I remember because the muscles in my neck seized up, and that's pretty usual for meningitis, but I'd never had it before. And I remembered, oh. like, I, because, like, knowing that if heaven forbid I died, no one would know until, like, class because this was over the weekend and I didn't have class until like Monday afternoon and so I actually oh. texted someone I texted a couple of my friends and I said obviously not hoping to die but please text me tomorrow at like this time and if I do not reply within like three hours then you maybe need to call someone but oh everything's my. fine but like this just I mean yeah. you know it's kind of scary so if you if you live alone like have someone to come check up on you every once in a while for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just let us know. I'll check up on you if you need help. Yeah. <laughs> Anthony's, Anthony's great. Yeah, he's a great, <laughs> great guy to check in on you. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, I actually found 
kind of a heartwarming thing that Christina oh. actually reconnected with her son Charles. Oh, good. So after, yeah, after she left Reuben, she went to Oregon where Charles was, was living and uh, she lived with him and she actually died in November 1938 and I use this as the next of kin. And yeah, she's buried in, in Oregon. Huh. What a, so that what a, is what a life. the really depressing life. I think that his record did not help him in his endeavors in, in trying to move on with his life after Ohio Penitentiary. And he probably became more of a criminal because of his sentence in prison. Hmm. Hmm. That is Ruben Gardner. So Wow. Well, I can't wait to find out a little bit more next week. Yeah. Arthur <laughs> Mary Allen. It's super fascinating. And it's one of my favorite trials. So everybody tune in. We'll have a laugh. It's a good time. hi listeners we did it we made our goal for idaho gives this year and then some thank you so much to everyone that contributed to the foundation for idaho history and to all the other deserving nonprofit organizations within our state nearly four million dollars were donated to over 600 organizations it's a tough time but you have shown through your generosity that you support our hard-working nonprofits also huge news Our book numbered Inside Idaho's Prison for Women, 1887 and 1968, is available now. This is the book that Sky's Research started. With the help of local authors and the Old Penn staff, we finally have it in all its glory with original portraits and more than 200 remastered historical photos never before seen in print. Copies are just $24.99 each. Click the link in the episode description and you'll be guided to our admissions page where you can choose shipping or in-store curbside pickup. It was so much work to put this book together, and I'm stunned by how incredible it turned out. So order it today! All right, Sky. What do you have for us today? So I um, am talking about number 7954, Norma Van Ostrand. Kind of an interesting story, actually, so... I'm excited to get into her. So my sources, her inmate file, Ancestry.com, there were some Idaho Daily Statesman articles. I actually used a YouTube video from the Utah State University History YouTube channel. It's titled Dr. Ross Peterson, USU History on Polio, Idaho, 1950. And then I used just a little bit of Wikipedia. So... Norma was born Norma May Van Ostrand on September 21st, 1919 in Dayton, Ohio. So a little bit, a little bit more of Ohio in here. She was one of three siblings born to Leroy and Daisy Schultz Van Ostrand. She had an older sister named Daisy, who was six years older than she was. And then she also had a younger brother, but I don't know how much younger he was or what his name was. She listed a brother in her file, but his name is blacked out. And I couldn't find a family census after 1920 for the family or like either of the parents separately, basically. And so I don't know what his name is. In 1918, Leroy and Daisy did actually have an infant son. His name was Leroy, but he died in that same year. So he was an infant, but I'm not sure if it was a a stillbirth or if it was um, a few days or a few months, Um, but he did not make it past one year old. And that was a year before Norma was born. So I don't think she would have listed that on her intake form as, as a brother, but Maybe that, you know, maybe that was something that her family really kept with them. I'm not sure. So I think as far as I can tell, she did have a younger brother. I just don't really know who he is. So before or during her teenage years, the timing is I'm a little bit unsure of, uh, but but around sort of formative years, her parents divorced. Her father remarried and he moved to San Francisco, California by 1936. And I think... The mother may have moved to California as well, but I couldn't find many records tracing her much outside of this divorce. And the reason I think her mother moved to California is because Norma claims to have graduated from John Marshall High School in Los Angeles, California in 1935. And basically, if her father is in San Francisco and she lived with him, she wouldn't have graduated in Los Angeles. Because I think her father was in San Francisco before 1935. I just found the confirmation in 1936, if that makes sense. 
So it is possible maybe that she went with him. He lived in L.A. and then moved up to San Francisco. But regardless, at some point, she is in California. Soon after graduating high school, again, according to her, she briefly relocates to Phoenix, Arizona, which was her mother's hometown, and she attended business school. She was in school for about a year. By 1937, she actually ends up in Utah. And so the the records that I found of sort of the, her next life's events are super jumbled. So this is sort of the best timeline that I have come up with. And I like looked at the sort of the same records like over and over and over and over again, trying to figure out a solid timeline. But this, I think, is is pretty much the closest to what actually happened. So, in late 1937 or early 1938, she marries Noah Samuel Cloud Jr., who was a member of the Cherokee tribe, and he was born in Oklahoma. There is no official marriage record that I found, but she is listed as his wife in a 1940 World War II draft card. Huh. And there's there was a little bit of confusion because his second wife, spoiler alert, his second wife is also named Norma, and so there was a tiny bit of who she was if this was the same Norma, but if they married in 37, and I, I figured out sort of when they divorced, and it was after 1940, so this is the correct Norma on this World War II draft card. In October 1938, their son, Noah Samuel Cloud III, is born, and her relationship with her son is unclear. I think she claimed him as her child when she entered the prison, but on her, her second husband's death, they list all of their children, and he is not listed as one of the children. He may have been adopted by a stepmother, but he does list Norma Van Ostrand as his mother on multiple records. So again, for a while, I thought that the second wife, Norma, was his mother, but I looked, he had several records where they ask him to list his mother, and he lists Norma as his mother. So I'm not sure if there was a falling out or what the deal was there, but that was her son. And then between 1940 and 1944, she and Noah Jr. had two daughters. One was named Lita, born maybe around 1942. I don't have a concrete year on that. And then I'm not sure of the other daughter's name and, and when she was born. I actually originally couldn't find any evidence of her daughters at all until I found an obituary of her last husband where, like I said, all of the children were listed and Lita Cloud was among them. And so I was so excited because I finally found a daughter. So it probably means that her last husband may be adopted, at least her daughters. And again, Noah third is not listed as his child. So this is, I mean, this is what's fun and what's frustrating about using, having to use, you know, records to piece together a life. Things kind of come together and the puzzle pieces start to fit and then there's one that just like doesn't fit or there's a piece missing from this brand new puzzle and it's super frustrating. But I'm certain that she had three children. She had one son and two daughters. And so sometime between 1942 and 1944, Norma and Noah get divorced. And I think, as is usual for the time period, Norma got custody of all three of the kids. So probably around 1944 or 1945, Norma married Frederick S. Pratt in Salt Lake City, Utah. Frederick was a radio entertainer born in Nebraska around 1912 or 1913. He also was probably a World War II veteran, but these are the only details that I know about him because they're the only definitive details I could find were on the divorce record, which is like spoiler, but not really spoiler. So yeah, the only record I found of him and sort of their life together was their divorce record in uh, 49 and 50. I don't know what he did on the radio. I don't know if he was like a DJ. I don't know if he was comedian, if he did like comedy or a drama show. I don't know, but that's kind of fun. So in 1945, the couple moved from Salt Lake City to Casha County, Idaho. In 1947, Norma gets a job working for Concrete Products in Rupert, Idaho as a bookkeeper. And in 1948, she took another job with Feeders Grain Supply in Burley, Idaho, again as a bookkeeper. And she would work at Feeders Grain Supply for the next two years. In September 1949, Norma files for divorce from Frederick, but they officially separate in February 1950. And it is probably between when she files for divorce and when the 
divorce is finalized in March 1950 that she meets and maybe falls in love with a young man named Sidney Church. He's actually a local pilot, like he flies planes. Sidney was born on April 22, 1919 in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was a, an Army World War II veteran. He received an honorable discharge after serving from 1938 to 1944. In 1942, he married a woman named Barbara Bowden. They were likely divorced by the mid-1940s. I couldn't find an exact date on that divorce, but they remarried in Utah in 1946. They actually had two sons. One was born in 1943, and another was born in 1946, but the couple were divorced again in 1948. He had just completely deserted her and run away to Las Vegas, where... He was found, and he had to be extradited from in order to face the desertion charges. And I found sort of their court record of this divorce proceedings, which I believe he didn't even show up to, even though he was uh, extradited to face the charges. She got custody of the two children and took pretty much everything that was in the house and then put a restraining order on Sydney. So... By 1949, Sydney's not doing super great, and, you know, he just basically lost his family, and so he meets Norma, they seem to hit it off, and apparently after Norma and Sydney meet and fall in love, supposedly, they decide they want to marry and, and leave the state. So, starting in 1948, Norma sort of decides that her normal salary is not quite enough to help her and Sydney get out of town, but it is also important to note that she did have custody of her three children, so she may have legitimately thought she was not getting paid enough to both take care of the children and try to save up a little bit of extra to get out of town. As I said, in March 1950, Norma is granted a finalized divorce from Frederick, leaving the way open for her and Sydney. So we are going to pause right now to sort of talk about what's happening in Idaho in 1950. And so her crime takes place in Burley, and since I've done the history of Burley before, I believe with Sarah Sue Roach, which was episode two of this season, I wanted, you know, like I said, to do something that was going on in Burley in 1950, but I found something a little bit more interesting, especially given what is happening in the world right now. And so this story that I will open with comes from Dr. Ross Peterson, who is an emeritus professor at Utah State University, which is my alma mater. So... Utah State. Hey, Aggies all the way. But if you're interested in, in hearing more of his story, because I don't talk about all of it or just want to hear it in his own words, then please go watch his YouTube video. It's on the Utah State University History YouTube channel. So it's Labor Day, 1950. A young Dr. Peterson, his father, and his older brother returned to their home in Montpelier, Idaho. I think he said they were stacking hay, and then the rest of his family had been at home. His older brother had football practice and things like that. And so they pull up to their home, and in the driveway of their home is a brand new 1950 Cadillac hearse backed into the front porch. And he says that Montpelier was so small that they didn't have an ambulance, so instead they used hearses to transport people to the hospital. And so they got out of the car and watched as Ross's older brother Carl was being put in the back of the hearse on the gurney. And he said his mother's in tears, everyone is, is obviously quite panicked, and the family is informed that Carl had been diagnosed with polio, and they were going to rush him to Pocatello, the St. Anthony Hospital, which had been designated as the polio quarantine hospital. And Dr. Peterson goes on to say that Bear Lake County had actually had a few cases of polio earlier in the year with a few deaths as well, so this was obviously a very scary situation for the Peterson family. Now, polio, or poliomyelitis, is an infection caused by the polio virus. It is spread person to person by infected fecal matter entering the mouth or by food or water containing human feces. Ugh. Yeah, I know, it's so gross. I was just like, ugh. <laughs> 25% of people who suffer from polio have a fever and sore throat. 5% get a headache, neck stiffness, and pains in the arms and legs. And then 0.5% or about half a percent of cases result in muscle weakness and inability to move, usually in the legs, but can involve muscles in the head, neck, and diaphragm. Of the half percent of cases in which muscle weakness occurs, 2 to 5 percent of children and 15 to 30 percent of adults die from the disease. Interestingly, 70 percent of infections actually have no symptoms. 
So polio is the, the disease that rendered FDR paralyzed. He was in a wheelchair for all of his presidency. We talk about polio sort of as a general disease, but I just don't think we know. We can't imagine it really in our modern disease ecology. But the truth is, is that polio was a very scary situation for many Idahoans, especially in 1950, because 1950 was the third worst outbreak of polio in the history of the state up to that point. It was also the second worst year in history nationally as well, and that's according to the spokesman of the National Polio Foundation. More polio cases had been recorded in the week of December 2nd, 1950 than any point in the last 23 years in the nation overall. And in the year of 1950, over $250,000 had been spent in trying to heal polio victims throughout the state alone. And I get most of those statistics actually came from Idaho Daily Statesman articles. And a year-end report in the Idaho Daily Statesman stated that there had been 161 cases in Idaho with 11 deaths. In 1949, by contrast, there had been 150 cases with 13 deaths. So they actually had more cases and fewer deaths, but still a very scary situation. And in fact, when you're scrolling through IDS articles, like, so I got got on and I just typed in polio and I narrowed the search results just to 1950. And at least once a week, almost the whole year, there's an article discussing a new polio case somewhere in the state. You know, these seem like small numbers when you compare them to our current epidemic, because I think the U.S. is nearing 900,000 cases. Uh, I think we're over 50,000 deaths. But it's also very important to note how long polio had been an issue. It's not spread in the same way that COVID is. Therefore, I think it, it tended to affect fewer people. But the other thing is, but polio had been around for and affected people for, I think, over 100 years at this point. And so to have surges in these diseases is very scary. And I think the other scary thing about polio is that it affected young children, which is a very different age category than COVID. We sort of have the opposite age categories that are affected in between these two diseases. And here's an interesting thing. Uh, In 1950, the peak age of polio cases had actually shifted from infants to young children five to nine years old. And in that five to nine years old category, that is where the risk of total paralysis is higher. So the fear that your child would contract polio, and especially if they're between five and nine years old, that would be so scary. And of course, you know, Dr. Peterson's brother was a little bit older. He was in middle school or high school, I think. But even then, you know, adults had, if you suffered from muscle weakness, you had a 15 to 30% chance of dying from polio. Wow. This is a scary disease. If you got polio, there, there was no guarantee. So 1950 was not the worst year for polio in the nation. That actually came in 1952. And nationwide, there was nearly 58,000 reported cases with 3,100 deaths and 21,000 cases left with mild or severe paralysis. So you can see that's almost 50% of cases that were left with paralysis of some form. Like this is, you know, even though there aren't very, the numbers in Idaho aren't big. This is a, this is a serious disease. So scary. So So iron lungs were the most common treatment for polio. And that, if you haven't seen one, I definitely recommend Googling an image of it, but it's this huge machine. Basically your whole body except your head goes in it. And what it does is it, it's a giant pressurized chamber that they vary the pressure in it. And that actually is supposed to help your breathing, especially when your diaphragm muscles lose their ability to function. So it's like a ventilator almost? like a Yeah, it's, it's essentially a, an old-fashioned giant ventilator. Oh. Um, and so speaking of ventilators, iron lungs have been nearly obsolete since polio was eradicated with a vaccine. However, in the overwhelming concern for ventilators and beds during the COVID outbreak, iron lungs have actually been discussed as potentially cheap, readily producible substitute. So there was discussion, and, and luckily I don't think it has come to that. But, you know, if, heaven forbid, you know, there's a second wave or future waves that really spiral out of control, people have discussed bringing back the iron lung to substitute for ventilators. Yeah. Oh. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. 
So Carl Peterson did live. He spent some time in an iron lung in Pocatello. And again, if you sort of want to hear how that story wraps up, please go check out Dr. Peterson's video. And the good news is that polio is preventable with the vaccine, and polio has been declared eradicated in the Americas as of 2004. And there was a vaccine that was developed in the 1950s, probably because of this massive outbreak. And it, you know, obviously it did actually work. So I think we can't really imagine what polio was like because we haven't seen it much mm-hmm. at all. I think there was something like 140 cases throughout the entire world in 2018. So it's, we haven't seen polio in the U.S. in several, several years. So that's good. Yeah. But I I thought that was, I thought that was a really interesting sort of outbreak that was going on in the 1950s that felt, you know, obviously very relatable, just on a different level. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I did not know much about polio, so. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm quite thankful we don't have to deal with that anymore. So let's get back to Norma. Yes, Norma. So remember, starting in 1948, Norma had begun pilfering just a little bit of extra money on each of her paychecks. And then on April 6, 1950, Norma and Sydney elope to Reno, Nevada to get married, and they do it with quite a bit of money. So Norma took off with somewhere between $4,000 and $5,300 that she had embezzled from Feeder's Grain Supply. Sydney had approached a friend, his name was G.H. Nishibu, which is a great name, Nishibu, and asked for nearly $3,000 or $2,803 to be precise. And he says he needs this money in order to buy a car. Now, so if the 5300 number is correct for Norma, that would leave them with about $6,100 with which to start a new life. Now, our favorite game, Anthony. Yes. Do you want to guess... How much $6,100 in 1950 is in 2020? I'm going to say 30000 Oh, boy. It is $65,332. What? what? I wasn't even halfway <laughs> yeah. there. It is a 971% of inflation between 1950 and 2020. And wow. honestly, $6,100 was able to go so far because of post-war prosperity and economic boom uh, Mm -hmm. that happened after the war. This is why the 1950s is considered, and again, I'm on a soapbox because I'm actually writing a paper about this right now, but after World War II, everything is insanely prosperous. People can afford to just have one worker in the home, so this is where we get the myth of the nuclear family, one father, one mother, the mom stays at home, the dad works. This is because people are so prosperous after World War II. Mm-hmm. So they basically have $65,000 to start a new life. It's wow. insane. It's insane. Yeah. I, don't, I don't even know what I would do with $65,000. <sighs> it's crazy. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, so she embezzled, all, she embezzled a lot of money because she brought most of that. Most of the majority of the money was, was hers. So wow. they are arrested in Reno on April 17th, 1950. They had not yet married each other. They asked her why she committed this crime, and she said, quote, my salary was not adequate to take care of my needs. And that was all she had to say about it. The Kesha County prosecuting attorney, A.H. Nelson, said of her crime, it is difficult to determine why a girl with a background such as this prisoner had would become so involved. Apparently, she does not realize the seriousness of such an offense. So both Norma and Sydney pleaded guilty to the charge of embezzlement because he did technically embezzle, even though he went to a friend and said, hey, can I borrow that money? He said he needed it for a car. He obviously didn't buy a car with the funds. So they were able to charge him on embezzlement as well. And so each of them received a 14-year sentence at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Sentencing judge Kales E. Lowe said of Norma's sentencing, quote, This is the first known offense of this defendant. Her sentence was not commuted because, in my opinion, such action would have had an undesirable effect upon those members of the public who might be tempted to commit similar offenses. I recommend that the defendant be admitted to parole as soon as consistent with applicable policies of the Board of Corrections. So, you know, he says, I mean, embezzling is the easiest way to make money. Um, or so it would seem. And so he wanted to really discourage people. He said, you know, even though this was the first offense, I normally would give her probation, but this one just might give too many people ideas. And so we have to send her to the penitentiary. So 
Norma entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on April 27th, 1950. Her statistics weren't overly descriptive. So, let's see. She was 30 years old when she entered the prison, born in Ohio, occupation bookkeeper, height 5 feet 6 inches, weight 130 pounds, complexion medium, hair color brown, and eye color blue. Her bertillion is pretty unremarkable, just a few scars around her body, and kind of the most interesting thing, which is not that interesting, is, quote, teeth fair. So, she had good teeth, which is actually far less common than you would hope in a lot of these bertillions. (laughs) So, after some time, after she came into the prison, authorities interviewed her about her relationship with Sydney, and at that point she said that maybe she didn't want to marry him after all. Her children had been placed in foster care upon her arrest, which obviously distressed her, but she knows there's not much else that she can do about it, so, you know, she has to to let that one be. While in prison, Norma behaves well throughout her whole time. Quote, physical adjustment appears to have been good. She worked in the usual women's ward tasks of maintenance in housekeeping. She may have also worked a little bit out in the gardens. She also practiced her typing from time to time, and she attended Baptist church services regularly. She put herself before the parole board in early 1951. She planned to live with a friend in Rupert, Idaho, and this friend's name is blacked out in the files. She had no specific employment plans, but could potentially work in bookkeeping as a general office clerk, as a sales lady, or as a waitress. And I would imagine, though, that uh, not many people are going to want to hire her in a bookkeeping capacity. Yeah. Uh, after 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 she embezzled fifty six thousand dollars. Fifty six thousand dollars is what she oh. embezzled. Oh, yeah. No, it's God. not worth it. Can you imagine? That's so much money. So at one point, an ex employer from the more on, I have to say that so it sounds like moron, um, from the Moron Fertilizer Company in Burley, he had apparently said that he would be willing to give her a job again, but it sounded like there was no definite commitment, and that it maybe had been said, like, a few months earlier, and she, but she said that, you know, with sort of the limited skills that she had, she was willing to accept any job anywhere in the state that she could find adequate placement, so she was willing to get herself back on track and, and do work that she needed to do. Since entering the penitentiary, she had heard a rumor that Frederick had remarried, but his wife had left him, so she, you know, obviously didn't think going back to him was any sort of option. She said she would like to see her children again, but she was afraid she would never be able to be in a good position to have them back or to offer them as much as they were getting in their foster home placement. She had obviously not ruled anything out, but, quote, it hurts her very much to face the prospect of never having them with her again or of giving them up for good. Which, of course... That's, you know, she's their mother. She loves her children. You know, she wants to do what's best for them, and she wants to have them with her, but she also is cognizant of the fact that she will have, you know, a record when she gets out, and as the primary caretaker, she is responsible for them, and she can't have them unless she can prove that she won't embezzle again, that she will work to make a life for them. Authorities asked her again about her relationship with Sydney, and she reiterated that she was not interested in marrying him, but did want to see him to have a good personal conversation with him about them and what had happened. Sydney was actually set to be paroled on the same date that she was. She also stated she planned to make restitution of the money she embezzled, not because she was compelled to do so, but because it was her moral responsibility. This is uh, a quote from the report, sort of pre-parole report. It says, quote, She gives indication of approaching emotional maturity and insight into the nature of her problems. It is hoped that she will continue to meet her problems in a realistic manner, that she has resolved or will resolve her apparent need for punishment or in regard to her guilt feelings. So she's had time to think about what she did, and she is realizing that what she did was not good. And she's willing to own up to that. She's willing to make, again, I love that. She's not making restitution because she's forced to, but because it's her moral responsibility. So she's changed. Uh, You know, she realizes the error of her ways and wants to turn everything around. So she was released on parole, presumably to Rupert, Idaho, on March 23, 1951. She served 10 months and 24 days on a 14-year embezzlement sentence. I don't know the details of what she did on parole, but obviously it was good enough, and she was discharged from parole on June 23, 1952. 
Now, Sydney had actually been released on the same day that she was, but he returned after violating his parole, and he was not released from the penitentiary until July 30th, 1954. He would go on to, to live his life. He never remarried, as far as I could tell, and he died in Tucson, Arizona on October 19th, 1996. And then Norma is, she's living in Rupert, and on December 14th, 1952, so uh, about six months after she was finally fully discharged, she married Oliver K. Peterson, who was a native of Grace, Idaho. They married in Soda Springs. She was six years his senior, to which I say good for her, and <sighs> together they had five children, uh, Lenny, Richard, David, Cindy, and Carrie. In 1954, Norma converted and was baptized into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or the LDS slash Mormon Church. She and Oliver remained active members for the rest of their lives, and Oliver died on December 5th, 1994. Norma died almost exactly 11 years after Oliver on December 7th, 2005, and both are buried next to each other in Grace, Idaho. Oh. And that is the story of... Number 7954, Norma Van Ostrand. I haven't really jumped into the 1950s too much. I guess a little bit with Roberto Seminiego, but uh-huh. yeah, that's really good. That's cool. Interesting. I, that's the thing is so many of these women were in for money-related issues, but they're like non-crime parts of their lives are so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for so, sure. So uh, d- don't, don't steal money. Like... <laughs> That's the number one lesson. You're going to get in a lot of trouble because someone will find out. Yeah, I think that's what we've learned today. Don't don't steal from people. Yep. Don't stab somebody over a card game and don't kill dogs. Like, jeez. Yeah. Or, well, you know, anything. But, man. <laughs> Unless it's spiders in your apartment, of which I have dealt with many. I have actually seen more spiders in my apartment than I have people in the last two weeks. So, <laughs> You haven't started naming them or training them to do things yet, have you? Uh, not yet, because I hate them. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> so spiders. we're about a week away from sh- that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. May, if I la- if I'm locked up too much longer in here, I may. My talking to myself has uh, gone up quite a bit. I realized <laughs> in the last week, so <laughs> things are good. Things are really good out here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you find out you've just been talking to yourself this whole time, and you haven't been recording the podcast. It's just all. I in wake your up head from a. And- dr- <laughs> I wake up from a dream. It's like 2007, and I'm like, oh, man, what's going on? Right. Oh, boy. Coronavirus has got us all crazy. <laughs> Coronavirus is, yeah, it's definitely, I'm going, I'm going insane. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm just happy you're healthy and safe, and you're wrapping up. You're going to be in Idaho soon. It's going to be oh, So great. soon. <laughs> so soon. I hope all of our listeners are staying happy and healthy and as sane as they can. I know things are crazy right now i my aunt texted me uh earlier today and she asked how i was doing and i was like uh you know i'm doing doing all right is everyone you know safe and healthy and she said we're safe and we're healthy but we are not sane so (laughs) i hope you're staying as sane as you possibly can yeah well you do your own time and you do your own number i will all right everybody stay (laughs) happy and safe and healthy see See you you next week. week yeah If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.